Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Today I speak with Stephen Caruana. Stephen is coordinator of the Australia OPCAT Network, a coalition of over 200 non-government organisations, academics, statutory officer holders and interested individuals concerned with the effective implementation of oversight to Australian places of detention. He is also a specialist advisor to the Australian Human Rights Commission and is involved in monitoring designated mental health units as an official visitor. Beyond this, Stephen's previous experience is enormous, having worked at the Disability Royal Commission, the Commonwealth Ombudsman, Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission, and the Department of Immigration and Border Protection. Much of Stephen's work today stems from a Churchill Fellowship uh, granted in 2017, in which he reported on how other countries monitor places of detention and what we can learn in Australia. Today we discussed OPCAT, the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. So yeah, OPCAT for short. It's an international agreement outlining how our Australian governments need to monitor places of detention to prevent abuse. It's really important and today is a historic day. Today we were meant to have implemented OPCAT fully, but in reality it's a patchwork across Australia. And in states like New South Wales and Victoria, we've barely started. This matters. Abuse and disability settings, Aboriginal deaths in custody, and the many human rights violations that I see occur in mental health settings, they all continue because our governments aren't monitoring places of detention. So be sure to listen in on this episode and remind your parliamentarians why this matters. So please enjoy this episode. Subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. All right, Stephen, thanks so much for, for being here. So as you know, the, the kind of opening question that we have for, for all interviewees is, why does regulation matter to you and to your community? Thanks, Simon. Uh, so before I begin, I'd just like to um, acknowledge that I am meeting with you today from the lands of the Darug and Tharawal people. And I'd like to pay my uh, respects to their elders past and present. Um, and recognize that uh, sovereignty was never ceded. So if, if I could begin, I just want to draw attention to a paragraph that comes from the final report of the Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory, or otherwise known as the Dondale Royal Commission. Um, it, it says, uh, independent external oversight is an important mechanism to foster community confidence in the exercising of power by public officials. An integral element of safeguarding that community confidence is the implementation of checks and balances uh, to ensure that any power uh, exercised is confined to that provided for in legislation, that there is accountability for the exercising of the power and liability for any consequences of the misuse of power. Mm. So there are you know, several cumulative elements within this definition. You know, it talks about external oversight, fostering community confidence, 
um, in the appropriate exercising of legal powers by introducing checks and balances in relation to monitoring the use of power, ensuring accountability for the use of power, and ensuring liability for any misuses of power. Um, there is, of course, um, an implied recognition in this definition that in places of care and incarceration, people subjected to deprivation of liberty, among other individual vulnerabilities, um, face significant risk to their personal safety and well-being by the very act of their detention. So the act of deprivation of liberty, of course, creates an enormous power imbalance and therefore external oversight of detention um, as a concept um, is focused on the legitimate exercise of that power and more so, or ideally, uh, should be focused on the protection of those subjected to, um, to that power. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of my experiences of oversight and, um, you know, of care, administrative and carceral detention environments uh, for several um, oversight bodies, uh, bearing in mind the definition I've just mentioned, um, it has been one of seeing external oversight um, as a concept being a continuum of practices that moves towards the realization of these goals and sometimes beyond them towards the rebalancing and restitution of power. Mm. Um, oversight as a practice can sometimes be a very static process. So, you know, for example, regulation can be centered on formal compliance with legal commitments and devoid of understanding the impact of the power imbalance on the lived experience of those subjected to it or to those applying it. Um, this can and sometimes uh, leads to what uh, is experienced as or referred to as a tick and flick approach to oversight. Mm -hmm. So um, infamously, the, the Oakton Older Persons Mental Health Service um, serves as a, a very practical demonstration uh, to the insufficiency of this approach alone. So um, as we know, um, while gross mistreatment and neglect was occurring at the center, um, Dr. Aaron Groves, who was the former chief uh, psychiatrist of South Australia and his team found um, in their review of those incidents that uh, with respect to the regulation of the aged care aspects of that service, um, Oakden became better at knowing how to produce documents and records that the accrediting bodies and surveyors wanted to and expected to see um, and better at ensuring staff knew what to say However, it became no better at providing safe or better quality care. Um, you know, we both know that horrific situation, of course, uh, was the precursor to the, the Aged Care Royal Commission. And, you know, that ultimately found in its final report that the regulatory framework for aged care uh, was overly concerned with processes and, and not enough on outcomes. Um, it said the system was insufficiently responsive to the experiences of older people. Um, and that there was a reactive approach to monitoring and compliance. Um, the regulator lacked curiosity about underlying patterns of performance um, and had been too ready to accept the assurances of providers in relation to their own performance. Mm -hmm. So obviously a static approach to regulation or external oversight um, misses by its narrow focus on legal compliance, um, the important contextual evidence needed um, for a far more holistic and robust understanding of, you know, for instance, what is going on, what is being seen, what is being said, and importantly, what isn't being seen, said, or is being hidden. Mm. Um, so this approach also neglects to view the role of oversight as an agent of change. So again, bearing in mind the power imbalances, um, external oversight should incentivize and support institutions towards innovation 
in favor of more humane treatment, safer practices, and res less reliance on punitive interventions. Um, to quote Anne Owers, who was the former Chief Inspector of Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Prisons in England, um, you know, when she was talking about the purpose of, of her role as a prison inspector, she said quite rightly that um, if you don't make a difference, it's prison tourism, not inspection. Mm. And of course, you can apply that to, to any other um, place of detention and any other, you know, oversight uh, role within that space. Mm. So I guess, of course, this leads us down the continuum of practices that I mentioned. Um, so for the most part, external oversight bodies employ uh, what I would call a responsive approach to their mandates. Um, you know, this translates in practice to, for instance, um, a greater focus on engagement with people's experiences rather than this over-reliance on systems exploration or documentation alone. Um, you know, we see more probing questions being asked of staff and management, more curiosity about why things are the way they are, the exploration of patterns of behavior, risk and intelligence-based assessments, and of course, a responsiveness to harm seen in proportion to the exercise um, or misuse of power to lesser or greater degrees. And this can, you know, this can be seen in, in sanctions, um, uh, leading to internal discipline processes, police investigations, or applying pressure through public reporting and uh, media engagement. So while I mentioned that most external oversight of places of detention, in my experience, fits within this responsive umbrella, um, there is still a great deal of work done towards the reduction of harm and power imbalances after the fact. What I mean by that is that, in other words, um, action responding to a stimulus. So uh, we often see this um, in the exercise of ombudsman's own power, own, own motion powers mm. uh, in response to, say, serious complaints or a trend of complaints um, or the establishment of independent reviews, coronial inquest and commissions of inquiry um, after horrific incidents or death has occurred in, in a place of detention. So, you know, if we think about the tragic death of uh, Miss Anne-Marie Smith, who was a NDIS care recipient uh, found living in squalid conditions in her own home, uh, largely confined to a, a cane chair. Um, or if we think about the circumstances in which an elderly dementia patient was found with maggot infested wounds at the um, Rafe, uh, Roy Fagan Centre in Tasmania. Mm. Um, these are some of those circumstances in which the community confidence in the exercise of power is severely un undermined and, and rightly. So we asked the question, how could this have happened? And where was the oversight? Mm. Um, this, of course, brings us uh, further down the continuum of practices to, to that which I think uh, still fit within the responsive umbrella, but are preventive and restorative in nature. Um, and of course, this is where my interest and passion for the OPCAT monitoring system lies um, as an example of a system which encourages such practices. And, you know, of course, in no doubt, we will, we will now discuss in uh, greater depth. Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. And thanks so much for taking us through that, um, you know, uh, sort of mapping out, uh, I guess, some of the issues with regulatory oversight. And I think that tick and flick kind of approach to, to regulation is unfortunately quite common. And, um, you know, one of, one of the people we both look to, uh, uh, John Braithwaite, uh, has written about regulatory ritualism, the idea that um, people, you know, just ritualistic, uh, ritualistically um, comply with laws, but not the intent or the outcome um, being sought behind those. And so that kind of flexible approach that you're talking to is, is crucial. And, 
And like you say, OpCat provides us a framework for doing that. So um, we're using the lingo um, of OpCat, um, but what what is it and what's it responding to? Uh, great. Um, in international law, uh, we, we know that torture is absolutely prohibited. And there are several UN treaties that serve to reinforce this absolute prohibition, um, as well as the prohibition of cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment of punishment. Uh, non more so than the UN Convention Against Torture, of course. Um, so despite its absolute prohibition, um, torture, um, and specifically that at the hands of or on the behest of state parties, um, continues to occur, and, and we know this. Um, so the international community recognising this reality um, adopted the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment of punishment, otherwise known as OPCAT, um, in 2002 as a means of strengthening um, in a very practical way, the international commitment against torture. So what UPCAT is, um, is it introduces a two-tiered system of external oversight to places of detention. So when states ratify the UPCAT, they commit to opening their places of detention to monitoring by the UN Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture um, or the SBT anytime. So the SPT is a body of independent experts who are nominated by those state parties that are ratified or are signatories to the OPCAT um, and are then elected to membership by those same state parties. Um, SPT members do not represent their state, um, so that's important to note. Uh, they are independent actors with multidisciplinary expertise. Now, the SPT makes visits to countries uh, with a twofold purpose. So one is to inspect places of detention and to provide a report country on their findings and recommendations, and secondly, to support, strengthen and advise the domestic monitoring body, which is also created through the OPCAT, which is uh, the National Preventive Mechanism, or NPM for short. Uh, so, of course, the SBT is limited in its ability to undertake frequent visits to states, both because of the sheer number of countries that have ratified OPCAT and because of uh, limited resourcing. So, for this reason, the more substantial of the OPCAT obligations is to create this NPM, which mirrors the SPT in terms of its powers and preventive inspection mandate. But being based in the state party, its visits take place with increased frequency. And it is a more nuanced understanding of the context under which the detention occurs over time. So um, there is a great degree of flexibility in creating an NPM. Uh, some state parties create new bodies to undertake the mandate, but for the majority, the responsibility is usually designated to an existing body, such as an ombudsman or national human rights institution, uh, because their broad powers and independence from government is usually already aligned with the opt-out requirements. Um, there is also the option to create multi-body MPMs, which uh, leverage off the experience and resources of multiple oversight bodies. Um, and this is the case in countries like New Zealand and the UK, and will also be the case for Australia, as um, you know, this model naturally lends itself to our federated model of, of government. Um, so while designation of existing bodies does occur, this does not signal um, that those existing bodies can function in a business as usual manner, uh, particularly where they inspected places of detention before being designated. And that's important to emphasize. So as I mentioned before, um, a lot of the external, re, uh, external oversight we see is reactive. OPCAT, on the other hand, is premised on prevention. And in their concept of prevention, torch, uh, prevention of torture paper, the SBT notes 
that there is more to the prevention of torture and ill treatment than compliance with legal commitments. So in this sense, the prevention of torture and ill treatment embraces or should embrace as many as possible of those things which in a given situation can contribute towards the lessening of the likelihood or risk of torture or ill treatment occurring. Uh, such an approach requires not only that there be compliance with relevant international obligations and standards in both form and substance, but that attention also be paid to that whole range of other factors relevant to the experience and treatment of persons deprived of their liberty and which by their very nature will be context specific. Um, so for this reason, the work of an NPM is not exclusively about inspections. NPMs uh, are also empowered to comment on legislation and policies, uh, to provide advice to government on drafting new legislation, uh, to arrange for educational and awareness raising activities for detention institution staff, and to engage broadly with the community on topics of concern. NPMs are encouraged to work with existing oversight in a complementary manner um, and to engage with other NPMs both domestically in the pursuit of best practice. They're also uh, encouraged to engage with regional human rights mechanisms and of course the UN treaty bodies as well. The work of an NPM when thought about, uh, you know, regarding that earlier definition of external oversight I mentioned, can and should go as far as necessary beyond providing the community confidence in the appropriate exercise of legal power. Uh, what I mean by that is that the NPM may in fact challenge that exercise of power and even embark on attitudinal change on the appropriateness of exercising such power. So as a small example, uh, following some thematic work which was undertaken to inspect children's institutions, the, the Paraguayan MPN was able to convince government to close seven care homes for children, which helped to deinstitutionalize those children and integrate them into a family environment. Uh, this outcome can be seen both as preventative and restorative, in that the power imbalance um, is obviously addressed. Thanks so much, Stephen. Yeah, it's it's um it's a unique uh, and really important uh, scheme that OPCAT um, uh, places or obligation that it places on 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 governments um, at a state and commonwealth, state, territory, and commonwealth level. Uh, like you say, it's not business as usual as well. It's a robust uh, framework. Uh, you know, there's the, the SPT at an international level and that's got the backing of the UN. And so, um, you know, that's that's either due to come out or I think it um, was going to come out and then a little thing called COVID might have gotten in the way. Yeah. Um, and uh, But at, at a national and state level, we've got to have these NPM bodies which need to monitor all of these different places of detention. Um, and I don't think for, for lots of members of the community, um, they will um, realise how many places um, are uh, areas of detention or restrictions of uh, places where there's a restriction of liberty. So, so what is that definition um, and what, what do you consider to be a place of de uh, detention um, under OPCAT? Yeah, look, the OPCAT uh, treaty itself doesn't define deprivation of liberty or, or, um, or specify what is a place of detention. And so in elaborating on this point, um, the SPT has provided um, guidance and it says that the preventive approach underpinning the optional protocol means that as, an ex as extensive an interpretation as possible should be made in order to maximise the preventive impact of the work of the National Preventive Mechanism. And therefore, the SPT takes the view 
that any place in which persons are deprived of liberty in the sense of not being free to leave or in which the subcommittee considers that persons might be deprived be de being deprived of their liberty should fall within the scope of the opcat if the deprivation of liberty relates to a situation in which the state either exercises or might be expected to exercise a regulatory function. So beyond what we would consider to be traditional places of detention, such as prisons, uh, immigration detention, youth detention, military detention, and police cells, for example, um, the OPCAT needfully accommodates for an increasing number of situations in which deprivation of liberty occurs and may occur over time. So I think the best and most current example of that uh, being that the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in people being subjected to deprivation of liberty for the purposes of quarantining in both dedicated facilities around Australia as well as hotel quarantine. Um, if a limiting definition to place of detention had been embedded in the OPCAT, then opportunities for accountability, transparency and safeguarding rights not be afforded in response to these emerging situations. So importantly, the SPT's definition of deprivation of liberty includes in which persons might be detained. Uh, should someone be detained in communicado by a state, it's enough for the SPT or the MPM to have a suspicion that detention is occurring uh, to gain unfettered access to that place. The SPT's clarifying comment about deprivation occurring in a place where the state does or would be expected to exercise a regulatory function also places beyond doubt that the jurisdiction of the OPCAT extends to education, health and social institutions like closed psychiatric units, emergency departments, involuntary drug and alcohol treatment facilities, aged care, schools and disability group homes. Look, if we look at group homes, for, for instance, um, uh, we know that in the 12 months until the 30th of June 2021, uh, the regulator received 1,032,064 mandatory reports, uh, incidents, about unauthorised restrictive practices occurring during that 12-month period. What is perhaps more alarming is that these incidents came from just 788 NDIS providers, or less than 5% of the total number of NDIS providers nationally. Um, so it would be quite illogical to argue that deprivation of liberty doesn't occur systemically in NDIS group homes. Clearly it does, and therefore would and should fall within the remit of an OPCAT inspecting body. Unfortunately, uh, in the Australian context, despite this very clear guidance, the Commonwealth has chosen to take an incremental approach to the work of Australia's NPM regarding places of detention. Um, it has chosen to limit the scope of places of detention to a list of primary places of detention, which itself determined, which you know, it itself determined. Um, you know, the rationale behind this decision was due to the recognition that there are potentially thousands of places of detention within Australia. And so the NPM would need to plan its work with proportionality in mind, so as not to exhaust its limited resources, but and also to ensure that those uh, most at risk of harm would receive prioritisation. Now, while this is uh, a very pragmatic and principled approach, what it ignores is the fact that the SPT states that it is the MPM itself that should choose how it prioritises its resources and not the state. The Commonwealth's approach therefore stands in contrast to the rest of the world. And during uh, his visit to, the, to Australia in 2019, 
The former UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Manfred Novak, stated that the Commonwealth's position might be considered as violating the OPCAP. Well, that's the second uh, most popular Novak in relation to OPCAP this week. <laughs> um, uh, look, as you as you say, uh, you know the, the definition is 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 quite broad, but it is concerning that that government uh, that the Commonwealth government has um, has narrowed that definition of places of detention. And like you say, that's not their decision to make. That's really the the NPM's decision to make. And what we've seen this in other policy areas where um, government, you know, changes the definition of a close contact, which doesn't actually change the nature of the issue. It just changes our visibility of that issue. So that's something that we should be really concerned about um, as, as Australians, that that effectively we're closing our eyes to abuse um, in disability settings. And um, so, you know, whilst a Royal Commission is going on into the um, disability sector, um, and, 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 and issues affecting the disability community more broadly, um, this is occurring. And that's really concerning. Now, you've spoken there about Australia as the, you know, the, the Commonwealth government um, uh, has ratified OPCAT, and they did so in 2017. Um, but as you know, because we're a federation, there's kind of a, a, a com- complex interplay uh, between you know, Commonwealth and state and territory levels. Um, I'm, I'm keen to get your... Um, your perspective on where are we at at a, at a Commonwealth state and territory level? Who are the leaders and who are the laggards? Yeah, um, look, as, as I mentioned earlier, Australia's MPM is going to be a multi-body MPM simply because this lends itself well to the fact that we are a federated state and each state and territory is responsible for the most, uh, you know, in the, for the most part on, of the places of attention within its jurisdiction. Um, they also have existing um, external oversight bodies in most cases. Um, so that said, um, Australia at the time of ratifying OPCAT in December 2017 uh, made a declaration under Article 24 of the OPCAT, which allows for the postponement of the obligation to establish an MPM for up to three years. Now, that's three years in addition to the one year afforded at ratification. So essentially, Australia has had four years to establish its MPM, and the deadline for that being today, January 20, 2022. Um, The progress towards meeting these obligations has been incredibly slow and disappointing for the most part. Um, In relation to the Commonwealth, so following ratification, the Commonwealth Ombudsman was in 2018 designated as both the MPM for Commonwealth Places of Detention, uh, which includes immigration detention, federal police custody and defence force establishments, um, as well as the MPM coordinator for the network of oversight bodies that each state and territory would designate. Uh, The Ombudsman's regulations were amended to reflect these new roles, and the Ombudsman positively undertook a baseline assessment of Australia's existing oversight mechanisms, reporting in 2019 on how those bodies were meeting or not meeting the requirements of uh, an MPM. Uh, The Ombudsman's office has also established an advisory group and has commenced periodic public reporting on its activities in immigration detention. So complementing this work, the Australian Human Rights Commission was tasked by the Attorney General uh, to undertake a significant consultation project on how Australia should implement the OPCAT. The Commission uh, received 122 submissions over two submission rounds from over 100 organisations and individuals and conducted roundtables all around Australia. This resulted in a very well-informed report which was given to government in mid-2020. So... 
if I move on to the states and territories, Western Australia was the first jurisdiction besides the Commonwealth to designate its NPMs, doing so in 2019. It announced that the Inspector of Custodial Services would be responsible for the oversight of prisons, youth detention and police custody, and that the Western Australian Ombudsman for Mental Health and Forensic Disability. So to date, this designation has not been accompanied by any legislative amendments or added resources. Um, in the case of the Inspector of Custodial Services, according to their annual reports for the last few years, funding has actually decreased since its de designation. And the important preparatory work for the OPCAT role has been stalled due to uh, continued uncertainty in the negotiations between the states, territories and the Commonwealth on a overarching framework for the OPCAT. Uh, the Northern Territory, um, it passed legislation in 2018 based on model law previously developed by the jurisdictions to enable the SPT visits to take place. Uh, the, the Northern Territory recently has also drafted a bill amending this legislation to designate and empower its MPM. It um, has in the interim, of course, also designated the Northern Territory Ombudsman for the purpose of stakeholder engagement around this bill. Um, necessarily, the, the Northern Territory process will also need to consider the findings of the Dondale Royal Commission as part of its designation process. And public consultation on the bill remains open until early February 2022. Um, the Australian Capital Territory also passed legislation in 2018 to enable SBT visits, um, and it has undertaken a few roundtables with stakeholders, including civil society bodies, and has just today announced its NPMs will consist of three entities, which is the ACT Ombudsman, which will look at police custody, the ACT Human Rights Commission uh, for mental health and forensic disability, and the Inspector of Correctional Services, uh, which will look after prisons and youth justice. It does not currently consider legislative amendments to these bodies exist, um, existing law as needful. Um, in the case of the Correctional Inspector, at least, um, you know, it's worth noting that its legislation only passed in 2017 and was developed with OPCAT designation clearly in mind. Um, Tasmania has, has passed an OPCAT implementation bill, which it did so in, in November of last year. Um, after that bill went through both uh, the House of Assembly and the Legislative Council with no amendments uh, made at all. Uh, the bill is designed to create an MPM for all places of uh, detention with that expansive definition in mind. So contrary to the Commonwealth's view, Tasmania is taking on the international view. Um, you know, the bill also complements existing oversight bodies and designates the Tasmanian Ombudsman with the possibility of others as the MPM. Now, the bill was produced, uh, you know, it was the product of several rounds of public consultation occurring uh, from 2020. And it's worth noting that it developed significantly from the original intention, which was just to make minor amendments to the Inspector of Custodial Services Act. Um, so in this regard, Tasmania is, from my point of view at least, um, the leader when it comes to how it consulted with relevant stakeholders on OPCAT and importantly, how it considered and was responsive to those views. Uh, South Australia, um, it passed a uh, correctional services accountability and other measurements uh, and other measures amendment bill in 2021, which established a new body um, called the official visitors uh, as an MPM for corrections. So significantly, this was the first MPM establishing uh, legislation to pass outside of the previous uh, Commonwealth Ombudsman amendments. A second standalone OPCAT bill um, 
which has passed the lower house, is currently being debated in the legislature, and it will designate the training center visitor uh, for youth detention, the community visitor scheme for mental health and forensic disability, and the jurisdiction of the correctional um, official visitors to include police custody. Um, late last year, Queensland introduced an inspector of detention services bill which prior had gone to stakeholders for uh, limited consultation. The bill is currently with the Legal Affairs and Safety Commission for consideration, and they are due to report on it uh, tomorrow, uh, the 21st of January, 2022. The bill is designed to be OPCAT compliant and provides for the Queensland Ombudsman to have independent oversight of youth detention, prisons, and police custody. The bill is made in response to several external reviews of Queensland's correctional oversight system uh, between 2006 and 2020. However, it does not implement a standalone inspectorate as was recommended by all those reviews. And Queensland has not has to date not verified that this body will be the MPM or part of the MPM for Queensland. Yeah, right, right, Stephen. Well, that's a, I mean, you, you've covered a lot of states and territories there in the Commonwealth. It's a pretty mixed picture, to be honest. Mm. Um, well, and I mean, what about the two, the two big ones, New South Wales and Victoria? Um, Victoria is the progressive state, so I assume we're leading. <laughs> I wish that was the case, but with the two most popular states, it's actually been the most uh, disappointing. So Victoria has to date uh, made no public announcements or conducted any public consultation regarding its intended designations. Um, however, the Victorian Ombudsman has proactively undertaken two trial OPCAT inspections, one in 2017 and one in 2019, and it used OPCAT principles in its 2020 report into the public housing resident lockdown, uh, which occurred during the first wave of COVID. These three reports essentially provide Victoria with a roadmap to designation. So they've essentially done the work for the government. Um, additionally, the, the Commission uh, for Children and Young People has also been forward in, in putting, uh, making known its interest in fulfilling an NPM role. Right. So New South Wales has also not publicly released any information on its implementation process. Um, there have been two committee inquiries since 2018, which recommend designation of the Inspector of Custodial Services and the New South Wales Ombudsman. And both organizations have put forward their intent to fulfill the role, uh, particularly for custodial settings. Uh, disappointingly, in March 2021, uh, the New South Wales Attorney General announced um, in response to a question on notice that New South Wales did not intend to consult on the OPCAT until resourcing concerns were addressed by the Commonwealth. Yeah, that honestly, that is, from both those two states, that is so poor. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really disappointing to hear that, Stephen. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to be talking with the Victorian Ombudsman and the um, Commissioner for Children and Young People as well later this year. So stay tuned for, for other people listening on. We'll, we'll have questions on OPCAT there as well. But uh, just shifting gears, I guess, you know, um, people with lived experience of detention, you know, and again, we've got that open definition. So disability detention, mental health detention, aged care, prison and so on, or it could even be education settings where young kids, are, you know, there's uh, incidents of kids being kept in cages here in Victoria. Um, uh, you know, it's going to be crucial to have their perspectives as part of implementation of OPCAT. So what role do you see people with lived experience playing? A very important role. So Article 18.2 of the OPCAT, you know, it places a positive obligation on states to ensure that its MPMs are multidisciplinary 
um, in their composition and strive for an adequate representation of minority groups as well as being gender balanced. So while expertise generally um, includes staff with legal qualifications, uh, medical and social science backgrounds, um, and those with experience as former staff in places of detention, uh, there is of course a compelling argument to be made that no one is more an expert on the detention experience than those who are experts by experience. Uh, and so while there is not a formal requirement to include experience in an MPM, where it has been included, there has been recognition of its importance. So for instance, uh, the Chief OPCAT uh, Inspector for the New Zealand Ombudsman, uh, when remarking about the use of lived experience staff in psychiatric unit visits, um, has said previously that um, as inspectors, we can see how things look. The experts by experience can tell us how feel. An example of the impact of noise levels, uh, sorry, an example is the impact of noise levels. The background sound of jangling keys and shutting doors might seem subtle to us, but to a person with high sensory awareness, they can be very distressing. Um, you know, earlier on, I spoke about OPCAT and preventive and restorative practices on the continuum of oversight. And as we both know, uh, you know, Professor John Braithwaite, mentioned at the end of his podcast interview with you that um, restorative justice is about doing with rather than doing something for people or doing something to people. So it's about ensuring that people, the people most affected uh, by the power imbalance in this case are part of the solution. So the inclusion of lived experience staff in the monitoring team is arguable, arguably of itself an important act of restorative justice. So beyond the inclusion of lived experience uh, in staffing, MPMs can and should, of course, involve people with lived experience in other activities, including as part of their formal and informal advisory boards or groups, or they may seek their expertise in training or preparing MPM staff to visit new institutions that they have not visited before. Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. Thanks so much. And I think it's really important that that, that point is highlighted. Um, you know, I know in in mental health, um, there's more, more of a focus on, on lived experience, participation and leadership. And, um, you know, I would even say that, you know, arguably some of the commissioners or the heads of these um, institutions should be people who have experience of that detention. That's going to be the case here in Victoria um, with the new Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission. At least one of those commissioners needs to be someone with lived experience and, and um, you know, for, for people conducting prison um, investigations and whatnot, I'd really encourage them, uh, policymakers and, and the heads of those institutions to consider the, the role of lived experience leadership in those spaces. Absolutely. Um, and so you've given us a really good overview of, um, you know, the importance of regulation and regulatory oversight, what, what OPCAT is, what it asks us to do, what we have and haven't done, uh, the role of people with lived experience, um, so I think people are quite informed at the end of this conversation, but what's one thing that you want them to go away and do after hearing you today? Well, look, um, you know, the former Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo, you know, he said in 2017 that OPCAT presents a once-in-a-generation opportunity to shine a light in these dark places, of course, meaning places of detention. And we've just seen today that the, the current um, Human Rights Commissioner, Lorraine Finlay, has been reiterating that same message. So four years after Ed Santo's remark, the commitment to OPCAT has uh, still not been met, despite the lengthy extension we've had. 
So not only are we as an OPCAT signatory at risk of international humiliation as the only first world country in non-compliance with our voluntary commitment, we are more important of seeing continued repeat of the shocking mistreatment that led to Dondale and that led to Oakton. So I think if there is one thing I would encourage listeners to do, it is to make your concerns about this known. We are, of course, coming up to a federal election this year, and it is important that all sides of politics know that our commitment to the OCAT must be fulfilled and it must be an election um, issue because it's at the heart of who we are as a society. Now, as famously stated by Mahatma Gandhi, the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. That's a beautiful point to end on. Thanks for talking with me today, Stephen. Thank you, Simon.